Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. The title of the next selection is Attraction. It is a poem attributed to Hafiz of Shiraz. Isn't this true, you say to everyone you meet? Love me. Naturally, this is done silently, for if said aloud, trouble would ensue. Nevertheless, do you not see there is a force within which is attracted to divinity? Are you the one whose eyes will shine with the light of a full moon that proclaims with enchanting symbols of moon talk what everyone's vision longs to see? Today's short story is entitled, A Problem and Its Solution. The spiritual guide stood before the group. She had been asked to give a talk on mysticism. She began with, This evening, I intend to outline for you one of the biggest problems facing humankind. This problem is at the heart of nearly every single crisis with which human beings presently are confronted and with which they have been confronted throughout history. It is a problem which has undermined nearly every government and community that has ever existed. She could tell by the look in the eyes of the audience she had managed to arouse their interest. She continued on. The nature of this problem is both extremely simple to state, and yet at the same time, the ramifications which arise from it have the most complex of forms. For millennia, philosophers have tried to address this issue, and for the most part have failed to arrive at workable solutions. Moreover, if anyone in the room could solve this dilemma, they would be awarded a Nobel Prize and the United Nations would declare a holiday to be observed around the world in honor of the individual who could offer a solution to this problem. Budding interest began to transform into avid curiosity. What was this problem to which she was referring? Shall I tell you what the problem is to which I am referring? she asked in a kind of rhetorical fashion since she had every intention of doing so and the audience would have been annoyed if she stopped now. However, the assembled group played their part. They gave an assortment of nods and verbal comments indicating they wanted the teacher to say more. 
The spiritual teacher turned to the blackboard behind her. She drew a straight line with a circle just touching but beneath the right end of the line. After drawing the line in the circle, she put down the chalk, turned to the group and said, There you have it, the problem. Diverse murmurs of confusion, mystification, and annoyance ran through the group. Someone asked, What kind of problem is this other than that I don't know what it means? Then, as an afterthought, the person speculated, Is that it? Is the problem ignorance? The teacher laughed and replied, Well, your suggestion is an excellent one, and there is no doubt that ignorance is a huge problem, but in truth, ignorance might not be the problem it is if it were not for the problem that I have diagrammed on the board. A few people in the audience began twisting their heads at various angles in the hopes of change of perspective might provide a clue as to what the drawing on the board meant. Most people just stared at the board and shrugged or looked at one another to see whether any of their neighbors had any idea what it was all about or shook their heads waiting for the teacher to say something more. The spiritual guide said, I am very certain that everyone in this room knows what this drawing means, but the mental tumblers just have not properly aligned yet. Maybe an alternative example might start you thinking outside the box a little. She turned back to the blackboard, picked up a piece of chalk, and printed T-L-D-J-Q-O-T-L-T-C-T-S. B. F. The group was even more mystified than before. How was this going to help shed light on the first drawing if they couldn't figure out what she had just written? She let the group struggle with the letters for a short while. Then she provided a clue. What if I were to tell you the letters I have put on the board have something to do with typing? There was a brief silence before someone near the back of the room said, the lazy dog jumped quickly over the log to catch the sly brown fox. Give that woman a cigar, the teacher said. Someone's neural pathways just fired. But all of you probably had this knowledge within you, because at one time or another all of you have heard or seen something very similar to the words just spoken by our winner. The teacher smiled, raised her hands and arched her eyebrows in a way which seemed to say, well, what about our first drawing? And she pointed again at the diagram. The group did not seem to be any nearer to an answer. A certain amount of frustration and boredom began to creep into some of the body language of various members of the audience, even though, supposedly, there on the board before them was the most critical problem ever to have faced humankind. The teacher offered a clue by writing two letters on the board a capital D, and a capital W. She turned back to the audience and waited. A short while later, her patience was rewarded. A woman in the front row said, Desire, world. The teacher replied, Exactly. Can anyone else expand on this answer? A man off to the right said, The line represents human desire, and the circle represents the world. Right again, the teacher responded. She deposited the chalk which she had been carrying around with her back in the tray beneath the board. 
Turning back to the audience, she commented, Although the diagram on the board appears to be static, the fact of the matter is that it is a very dynamic one, since, after all, both desire and the world are in motion all the time. But desire being what it is, and the world being what it is, there are certain principles or laws which govern how desire and the world engage one another. For instance, one of the ways in which desire manifests itself is in the way human beings always try to bend the world to the demands of desire, and since this can never happen except in limited ways, the attempt to do so tends to lead to nothing but frustration, anger, resentment, impatience, jealousy, envy, hatred, depression, and despair. This is so even amongst the very rich and powerful, because the nature of the world is such that it is forever eluding their grasp and cannot be completely controlled in the way they wish. The teacher briefly surveyed the audience from right to left and from back to front before saying, As I indicated at the beginning of this exercise, I was only going to outline this problem which I have diagrammed on the board. But let me ask you a question. What is the solution? Lots of ideas came to the minds and hearts of the people in attendance. But no sooner were they mentioned than someone would point out a problem with the suggested solution. However, at one point during the discussion, a young man proffered the following. It seems to me that if all the problems begin with our trying to make the world conform to our desire, maybe what we need to do is find a way to get our desires to conform with the actual nature of the world. Everybody, including the teacher, liked the young man's answer. After a short pause, someone asked, Okay, so how do we do that? The young man said, I don't have a clue, and everyone laughed. The eyes of the group returned to the teacher with a collective question written upon them. She smiled and said, Spirituality. Not philosophy or science or politics, but spirituality. But to properly understand why this is the solution, or how one needs to engage this solution, all of this requires a lot more hard work than figuring out the previous problem did. And I'll leave the details of the solution for another time. The title of the following musical interlude is Higher Love.
From the outback of Australia to the rainforests of South America, from the frozen tundra of Siberia to the plains of Serengeti, from the Himalayans of Asia to the white cliffs of Dover, from the geysers of Yosemite to the glaciers of Antarctica, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. This week's edition of Meditative Essays is Gayer. In modern civilization, one hears much talk of estrangement and alienation. For example, many of us speak about not feeling at home in our homes. We lament how familiar faces hide an existential strangeness and distance which separates us in hard-to-define but fundamental ways from the ones with whom we often are most physically and emotionally proximate. We are lonely in the midst of people. We have affection for many people. We care about what happens to them. We seek varying kinds of companionship with them. We help them, and they help us in different ways. Yet, there is an alien dimension to them which we frequently find frightening. There is an otherness, or gayer, about them which isolates us from each other. We experience this alien otherness with our spouses, our children, our parents, and our relatives. Our friends bear the mark of otherness. As we journey outward into the neighborhood, community, city, nation, the world, and the universe, the sense of otherness intensifies in unpredictable and terrifying ways. We are haunted by the feeling things can go sour and turn on us at any moment. We do not appear to live in a user-friendly world. In fact, we seem to be traveling in potentially hostile country almost on a continuous basis. The boundaries of that country extend from the beds in which we sleep and recedes outwardly through 360 degrees of arc, encompassing everything between us and the horizon. The aura of otherness which pervades our lives affects virtually everything we think, feel, and do. For instance, otherness is at the heart of the territorial imperative which governs much of our lives. We spend a great deal of time, energy, and resources marking and labeling that which is ours and to which the other is not entitled. We seem to need to constantly remind ourselves and the other that she or he is indeed the other. We struggle with great diligence to reinforce the self-other boundary lines which distinguish our territory from all others. For most of us, life is a game of go, in which, both consciously and unconsciously, we seek to maximize our spheres of influence while minimizing the spheres of influence of the other. Much of our sense of personal space is constructed from materials of otherness. The degree of access to our personal space which we extend to anyone is a function of their otherness classification. Few, if any, are granted entrance to the sanctum sanctorum in the innermost reaches of our being. This means, for the most of us, that everyone and everything is rated as other in one way or another. Business, government, law, sports, marriage, family, economics, international relations, and religion are all saturated with the ramifications of otherness. We treat the environment 
as an emphatic other. Ironically, otherness is not just reserved for others. Many of us have become others to ourselves. Indeed, many of us have become so confused we cannot differentiate within ourselves what is self and what is other. If we don't know who we are, then how can we know what is other? Our uncertainty about our own identity is often reflected in the changing patterns of otherness which we perceive in the world. In other words, as our ideas about ourselves change, so too do the otherness classifications we issue to the people and things of the universe. Access codes to personal space are constantly being reconfigured. The confusion between self and other within us is the source of much of the ambivalence we experience concerning ourselves. We are both attracted to and repelled by the denizens of the deep within us. There is both fear and hope concerning whom we might be. If we feel ambivalence towards ourselves, we cannot but project this ambivalence outwardly. In the mirror of the other, we see the image of our own ambivalence towards ourselves. According to the masters of the Sufi path, the source of all otherness flows from our conscious decision to treat God as other. We are other to ourselves because we issue to God just as we issue to everyone and everything else an otherness classification. We have set the access code to the door of our hearts to reject God when divinity buzzes us. We treat God as other because we fail to recognize the presence of divinity within us. We relegate God to otherness because we do not understand we are loci of manifestation of divine names and attributes and cannot be other than this. We try to restrict God to our various conceptual and emotional categories of otherness because we get caught up in the forms of otherness and do not see the one whom is the common denominator linking all of these forms. We treat others as other because we fail to recognize that they, too, are loci of manifestation of divine names and attributes. Otherness, strangeness, alienness, separation, and distance are all illusions generated out of our spiritual ignorance and projected onto our experience. If we could witness the reality of divinity within us, we automatically and simultaneously could not but witness the reality of divinity in others. In fact, others would no longer be other. We would all be participants in the theater of divine manifestation known as existence. Moreover, according to Sufi masters, we could take this one step further and simply say there is no we in existence. Being is the locus of manifestation through which the reality of the one and only I gives expression to diversity of forms and meaning. We are like sunspots on the surface of radiant divinity. We do not understand that our darkness is an artifact of a relative absence of presence, which has been made possible by divinity itself. When the forces underwriting this localized and relative darkness are dispelled, the full radiance of divinity again is manifested. Otherness, we, and the false I all disappear with the darkness. 
Oddly enough, many of us fight tooth and nail to retain our darkness. We seem to fear the possibility of the sun's return with the disappearance of the temporary and relative absence of presence which we experience as spiritual darkness. Darkness may involve all manner of misery, but at least it is our darkness. We derive identity from our darkness and its concomitant misery. We fear the loss of this identity, such as it is, because we do not know what will replace it. We seem to feel being other is better than not being at all. The practitioners of the Sufi path tell us the only thing to be lost is the darkness. In losing the darkness, we will reclaim the radiance which always has been intended for us. Sufi masters indicate the only thing that will cease to exist are the illusions generated by the darkness of otherness. The falsehood of our ego will be replaced by the reality of our essence. The inertia of otherness stops us from seeking to dispel the darkness. Otherness has a vested interest in maintaining the system of otherness classifications to which it parcels up existence, including its own. Sufi masters try to show us the nature of this system of otherness which we, through our darkness, have generated. They also try to help us, God willing, to activate and realize our potential for radiance which dissolves all sense of otherness. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.